Economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome back to our show. I'm graduate assistant Jacob Michael, and here with me are our hosts, Dr. Levi Russell, Dr. Russ McCullough, and Dr. Justin Clark. Yeah, we got the new boy uh, here on the podcast. So Dr. Clark was on an episode a couple uh, a couple times ago, and he is a new fixture within the Wharton Institute. And uh, Justin, it's great to have you on and have you on the team. Glad to be here. So today we're going to talk about Jacob's uh, blog post, and we'll put that in the show notes. Jacob wrote a post about uh, kind of reviewing or, or summarizing um, a book called The Social World of the, the Social Order of the Underworld. Social Order, there we go. <laughs> um, so he's going to kind of lead a discussion about that book, and, and it kind of gives us an idea of sort of the economics of prison systems and stuff like that. So Jacob, how do you want to start us off? Yeah, well... Um, you know, I thought it was pretty interesting from, you know, a rational choice perspective on why people would engage in choices that most people wouldn't see as rational acts. But, you know, rational choice can tell us that it's all just responding, a, you know, cost and benefit analysis. And it's just just because we don't share the same preferences as someone who might be in prison or the same situations that give rise to organizations in prison. It's, it's interesting for me to understand why they come about. And so one of the things that David Scarbrecht in the book talks about and how he kind of starts the discussion of the rise of prison gangs is how they lack formal governance because he talks about the role of government and what they are supposed to do for society. And so the three that he really outlines are to define and protect property rights clearly, to promote voluntary trade and exchange within the community, and then... Um, I can't remember exactly what the third one, the wording is, but it's basically providing public goods, things like military defense and roads, things that, uh, you know, the, the individual or the particular business doesn't have a monetary incentive to provide for the public. And so without those, people look for other ways to try to find these uh, ways to coexist and engage in markets uh, that aren't traditional markets or maybe, uh, you know, illicit or informal markets. And so he talks about the two ways that people find governance outside of regular or traditional government structures. And the first one is norms and organizations. And he talks about, you know, historically uh, norms that were, you know, strong enough in the penal system to where there wasn't a need for prison gangs because norms are a lot more successful when it's smaller groups. So the transaction costs of remembering all the tra or, uh, yeah. all the information about everyone else that you engage with is, uh, you know, it's a lot simpler. Right. And it was easier to tarnish reputations because everyone knew everybody. In the so villages. So yeah, stuff, yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he kind of likens it to the, uh, well, later on with the organizations, he, he likens it to the, the medieval merchant system where they use the uh, community exchange system to where it's the same with, like, gangs now. Like, uh, you might not know the reputation of an individual, but you might know a gang's reputation. So you can trade on organization reputation. <laughs> and I think in kind of a similar vein, we gravitated towards government to give their blessing uh, as we got larger and larger. But now, with the internet and new technology, the reputation factor can come through stars and rating systems, and so we can actually be scaled up pretty high and come back to this peer-to-peer -peer without quite the same need, maybe, that we had before for government intervention on it. So I think it's kind of 
uh, similar that way with the, the reputation factor and the trust factor being the important <laughs> ingredient, however that manifests itself. Yeah, and um, small organizations he talks about are usually pretty, they, they work in decentralized ways, so that's probably true, but um, especially like with norms, it, it works you know, a lot better when there's these smaller numbers, and he talks about how previous to 1960, the, the prison system was pretty homogenous, so there wasn't, I guess, as much of a need to identify as one versus another versus now he talks about how like prison gangs, one of the most popular ways to identify is through race. And he talks about, well, one reason that's probably is is because it's so hard to switch. Like it avoids the free riding problem because first off you can easily identify, but it's hard to switch communities. So you can't just ride on the reputation of one gang and it's easier to kind of sort out the false versus the true, you know, members of that gang. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I got. I just want to say this is a little aside that this is appropriate that we're somewhat talking about the underbelly of society. So, if, uh, listeners, if you hear a little cranking of the glass, uh, we're in Levi's basement right now. This is the first podcast that we've done down here, and it's Friday afternoon, and so we're uh, we decided to enjoy some uh, delicious beverages that uh, Levi put together. So, if you hear that, that's that's what's going on. So. So, yeah, um, I wanted to jump in a little bit with the uh, no government aspect. There was a, an interesting paper by Peter Leeson out of George Mason, and I went to a conference, and it was titled Anarchy Sometimes? Question um, mark. And so for me, when I taught this in principles class, you know, the spectrum of government was we have to have some sort of government to have any sort of order, otherwise mm-hmm. we just have chaos. And so... Mm-hmm. He actually pushed back on that because in the Congo, in Africa, uh, the government was overthrown. And for a, about a two-year period, it was anarchy. There was no organized form of government. And he went back, as a good economist does, and looks at access to drinking water. There was 18 variables, access to drinking water, life expectancy, um, uh, income levels, of course, proximity to health care. So 18 variables of all social variables that we care about and like 16 or 15, 15 or 16 of the variables were all better with anarchy compared to a government system. Mm -hmm. Because so, I mean, if the government's corrupt and, you know, crap, they can be hurting you more than they're helping you. Can I just pick a distinction here? Uh, So I'm, as a libertarian and anarcho Sympathist. Uh, I totally sympathize with this idea that, uh, you know, in the Congo, things are better without a government. But I think what we really mean there is without a state, um, where a state is defined as the organization that has the monopoly on legal force within a given territory. So there's plenty of different things that have governments. You know, the Rotary Club has a government, a gang has a government. Um, but what makes, I think, what you were, when you're saying government, what you mean is state. Because yeah. even in you know the Congo, there will be different uh, norms and different enforcement procedures for their norm, for those norms. But what we mean by government is really a state, an entity with a legal monopoly on organized force within a given legal territory. by their own terms, perhaps or whatever terms. But there, there's boundaries, there's physical boundaries, and within that territory, it's recognized by other states. Also, right? I think that's yeah. Part or at least of it. that it's it's plausible that they have this monopoly. I mean, the United States, it's pretty well recognized that they have a monopoly on legal force within 
the yeah. borders. Yeah, right? monopoly on money. But, and, um, yeah. but if a bunch of other countries said, actually, we're not going to recognize that, if that happened tomorrow, I mean, it would still be the case that even, ah. I mean, we plausibly, we'd look at the situation and say, look, who really holds the power? Obviously, the federal government does. So I don't think it's so much a matter of other governments recognizing it. I think the causal error goes the other way. Other governments recognize it when it's a plausible claim of force. It's not that it becomes a plausible claim of force when other governments recognize it, if that makes sense. So I don't think that would be force. What Scarbrand calls it is governance. <laughs> That's that no, Dr. Clark stuff. Love it. Plausible yeah, claim of force. Government, government governance distinction is interesting because I think that's maybe another way to restate what you're saying is that states are entities that you know provide governance as a service. And so that's the service that's different within different contexts or different groups of people like gangs or countries or whatever. Well, and so in uh, going back to the Congo example, I mean, that's definitely kind of coinciding with what Scarbeck was saying, because when they didn't have the role of government or someone to, you know, define the way to interact, the like, like in prison, someone had to step in and define these interactions. Yeah. And without, you know, specific to prison, they don't have access for, normal you know governance and some things like the contraband market so they have to self-define and self-regulate mm-hmm. when you know um the mo- he makes a the point about how mafias come up in the ser- the same way that they they operate in ways or engage in services that normal governance has no control over so they arise as a need for protection so there's a supply and demand side to it too they talk about with the, the you know the rise of prison gangs too yeah, I mean, I think the the key is the emergence of laws. Um, maybe Justin could claim a, a, a natural law tends to emerge where there's no law at all. People come to mutual agreements and norms of what they do, even if they know each other or not. Mm-hmm. So that uh, Hayek talked about spontaneous order that just emerges from normal human action. And so as Scarbrecht says that, that that norm-based structure works up until a certain point where it gets too big for everyone to, for it to be cost-effective for that to work. And then organization. And I would say holding technology constant, kind of a setter's purpose claim, like as okay, you become yeah. large, as a population, and that's what the point I was trying because to make earlier is that, transaction costs yeah, so like, yes, we need a government up to this point, but yet then if there's some technology shift that allows us to convey information more quickly to each other. But, all, but also another, another reason is some organizations have a comparative advantage in some things, you know, and specific to the, the prison examples, they have a comparative advantage in drug dealing, not only through <laughs> extensive networks, but also they can use a concentration of deterrent. Of- Labor, yeah, but I mean, they're more successful at deterring opportunistic behavior as well. Whereas the individual, I mean, that's going to be much harder. Yeah, so I think it's interesting. I think one of the complaints that we have sometimes is that if we don't think of governments as you know groups of people, then we you know maybe mess up how to understand them. So public choice, you know, don't think of bureaucrats as just robots that do X, Y, and Z, but they're you're humans with goals and stuff like that. And so they might have opportunistic behavior. And so I think it's interesting you said technology because, and again, part of a theme we've had for several episodes is that, you know, the, the technological progress itself is not some kind of, you know, outside force in some cases. And I think especially we're seeing this now that, you know, there's certain exemptions that were provided early on in the period of the Internet are now giving, you know, these, some of these social media companies and, and other groups like Google and stuff uh, the ability to kind of undermine the, the state's governance and, and kind of take control over the governance structure itself um, just because they have, they're the ones that are actually in control of those, you know, transaction cost mechanisms. So the, 
the transaction costs don't just go down, they go down, but you know, someone else still has some kind of, you know, control over them to an extent. Mm -hmm. Right. A shift of potentially a shift of power. I mean, my big thing is I think there's room for the government to reduce in areas that we just take it for granted that it needs to be there. And with, with the technology, whether it comes down to, you know, voting or other things, the, the way we organize uh, policy measures where they're all kind of log rolled together. I mean, do things really have to look that way anymore? I'm not sure they do if we can all reasonably vote. Um, the whole idea of rational ignorance is that uh, voters don't find the benefits of voting worth it, right? Because the costs are too high. Yeah. So you got to go learn about the Mm. policy and everything. And and that still might be true, but that rational ignorance factor might start to fall if like your vote actually counted more, like we're doing a little more voting, but it's a lot easier. So the cost to vote is to pick out your phone and, and hit a a secure encrypted, whatever, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. I understand what that would all be, but I'm sure we can do it. Mm -hmm. Right. Cause I know they're doing it in Estonia and some other countries. So we could actually direct government. Yeah. Yeah. Literally on your phone, some stuff in Estonia, uh, they've kind of taken the lead over there with uh, Nokia and whatever. Some of those other Danish, uh, companies that are fairly high tech. So they, when Estonia broke free from the Soviet union, uh, with all the other countries, they were one of the top countries that implemented a lot of new things to create just a stable rule of law so that it wasn't people in there. And one of the ways they did that is through using a lot of technology that is different than what we're even using in the United States, how easy it is to start up a business and, and lots of other things. So I just think that to get our current status quo to change, it's not going to do it because it's like, Oh, we can't trust these things. These kids are just playing video games. We can't trust them to vote. And, you know, they'll press the wrong button and vote for Trump or something. I don't know what's going to happen. So I think uh, there's a whole generation of people that probably need to, like this millennial generation is probably going to be it. And I'm actually an older person that thinks that that's the wave that could make some changes. That would make voting a lot easier. At the risk of uh, turning myself into the old Curmudgeon. curmudgeon here, which <laughs> I, I most certainly am. Uh, and maybe this will be the last podcast I'm invited to. Uh, I'm, I've managed to stay on, so you'll know, be all right. <laughs> I'm always, I'm a little skeptical on this idea that more democracy is always better and that increasing people's willingness and uh, willingness to vote that will necessarily result in good outcomes. I think yeah. uh, democracy is one of those words that we just, uh, you know, is, it's floated out like this thing that is always good. Yeah. But every single, you know, it's held as a sacred series, cow and it's probably down the list quite a way. Every single serious political philosopher and especially ones that look at what Dutoko said about, you know, America, you can look at what Plato said about democracy. What look Paul at what Hain said the, on the Liberty Fund article. I actually brought this up in there too, that, yeah, yeah, democratic was, capitalism might just fall apart because of the democratic part. <laughs> one of, if you want to have a democracy, you need to be very, very careful about the things that you allow people the ability to change via vote. Yeah. Or else you can very quickly end up in a situation where right. a small majority is uh, really expropriating a minority. Uh, you can run into, you know, you know, the tyranny of the majority examples is just, yeah. All so over the place. The might doesn't make right, but 51% makes right <laughs> kind of thing. Yes. Yeah. 
Well, that looks like some interesting stuff to bring up on the second half. So let's uh, dive right into all the diabolical plans of the few and how they take over the masses by their ignorance. That sounds fun. We'll see you in 30 seconds. The Gortney Institute's vision, by 2030, the Gortney Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economics understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to student experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. Please visit our website at 123povertysucks.org. There you will find our events, blog, and our swag shop. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123povertysucks or on Facebook at Gortney Institute for updates on our activities and research. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time or recurring donation. Please visit donate.123povertysex.org. So um, let, let's play a little bit more onto that. So we've got the minority who might be able to overtake the majority, essentially. But the only way that happens, I guess in my mind, is with this idea of rational ignorance. So, well, so they don't have to be rational. I guess they could just be ignorant about it and just well, the point, the don't point, want to vote. So rational ignorance means you've weighed out the benefits and the costs right. yeah, yeah. and uh, the benefits of voting don't outweigh the costs and so you just sit on the sidelines and hope that things worked out because it's a waste of time to learn about all the policy measures and everything else. So that's rational ignorance. But I guess there's plenty of ignorance so just not knowing and no, I guess I, I know. What do you mean a cost-benefit analysis? I've never, <laughs> I've never weighed out the benefits of voting. I just think it's stupid to go to the, you know, so internally maybe they're still doing the same thing. It's a waste, they think it's a waste of time for them to drive to the voting booth, but whatever. Yeah, I, think, I think we should have an episode on voting because I, I think, I think the, the cost-benefit thing makes a ton of sense in, in terms of what people actually do. But I, I think the, the problem that we have here is that, again, like as things get more complex, that it makes it harder and harder to have the information you need. And so, yeah, technology might make it easier for you to vote and lower the cost of voting, but with that technology makes everything else more complicated and all of the policy interactions get more and more complicated and you have to rely more and more on uh, a larger number of bureaucrats to make sure everything is managed. And, yeah. Right, and so in terms of the government itself, because again, like it's always like, well, we're, you know, we want technological progress, you know, and there's sort of a moral component built into the term, you know, innovation and progress, but as we've said a few times, 
you know, the, the technology can be bad for you and it can be good for you. And I think this is a case where, in terms of the voting thing and, and rational ignorance, it, it may not necessarily make it a whole lot better overall because it might undermine. Well, and, and the rational ignorance comes a little bit in two phases that, or there's a separate aspect to it, and that is the special interest groups, the lobbyists, do have narrow benefits that do outweigh the cost. So they're rationally in the game because it's profitable for the pharmaceutical companies to be lobbying the politicians for some sort of favoritism. That's actually a profitable thing to do, but that takes down Adam Smith's notion that profit maximization leads to desirable social outcomes. That was always predicated upon justice. And part of that justice is not having maybe a legal system that could be corrupted by uh, people um, having an unfair, yeah, competitive advantage. So. You know, Washington's been talking about getting rid of lobbying or re reforming. I mean, the whole drain the swamp here lately with Trump was meant to address that. I haven't. I don't think there's been much movement in that direction with with Trump on on any sort of well, significant reforms. I'm sure. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, but I think that's the right thing to target. But I don't have the answers. It's a it's a complex thing, other than to just ban it altogether. And then sometimes I have mixed feelings about that. Like, if that, how do you get the vote out? I think the little bit that I've thought about this before is that lobbyists, instead of, let's make lobbying politicians illegal, and the only thing you can do is lobby people. So now they have to spend their money going out talking to people. Like, they're, they're banned from going in and talking you to their talking congressmen. To voters, yeah. yeah, talking to voters directly. With today's technology... That's possible to, you have to woo over a significant amount of voters who now can win election day or whatever, some sort of day that says, what's, what, what's your feelings on this? Now they pull up, they've been exposed to advertising in a number of different ways, but all the money's been spent getting to the individual voter rather than getting to the congressperson. I mean, I think that's the type of move that this country could take. But people spend lots of money on media to reach the individuals, too, and it's not all necessarily good information that people get. No, yeah. So no. they just dump a bunch of money into giving people bad information. That's still a bad outcome. Yeah, no, it'd have to be. It, I mean, it's going to ultimately be competition among people trying to get you information and who hires LeBron James and who doesn't. <laughs> I mean, we're kind of back to selling yeah. any old good, but now we're trying to sell more public goods that way. And I, I'm not saying that'll work, but I think there's probably something better than the status quo. Yeah, move in the right direction. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Might be through baby steps. So It's a move. I'm not sure that banning lobbying would have the effect that we think it would have. It would probably create think, some illegal markets for It would lobbying. definitely create some illegal <laughs> lobbying markets, and I think we would see the same thing uh, happening in a slightly different guise. Well, and, and the thing is there is that, you know, just like with any black market, if you – if you, um, you know, if you make it in, if you put it in a black market, then you lose all transparency. You, you have, you don't have the ability to have, you know, opensecrets.org with, you know, that, that compiles all the information from all the lobbying and donation information. And you go one so, source. Now, let me, let me play off that because that, that is the fear that some people who want the government protection want to grab onto. And I'm not saying you're one of those people, Levi, of course, yeah. I know you know that better than anybody, but right. so uh, we had uh, Dr. John Stanko talk, and he uh, talked about Cuba and um, 
Uganda and, and Zimbabwe and some other places where the government had screwed up the currency so bad that there's illegal markets in hard currency. And so he lived in Uganda for like seven years during, or uh, maybe, I'm sorry, maybe it was Zimbabwe, uh, during the bad times, like from 2001 to 2008. And so since he was there a lot, he learned how to participate in informal markets, right? Black markets. And, but what he said was surprising is he'd go to buy gasoline and the prices of gasoline would be about what you'd pay in the United States. In other words, they were a fair rate. So the market system was operating fine, kind of below the radar. You know, we always think of illegal markets of, oh, there's going to be a thug there and, you know, they're going to beat me up. But it's just a normal person who's trying to make a life for themselves. And so they find these informal ways or illegal ways because the government, the way their rules are. And so he said, you'd go buy something and it'd be out of the back of a guy's trunk. And the only way you knew that that guy was selling it is you had to know somebody else. So this trust factor was actually pretty high because you had to have this element of trust that I'm not going to rat you out and you're not going to rat me out. So the norms were established. And then, but the, what I thought was surprising was that the terms of trade he thought were pretty normal, like pretty fair. And so you've got this whole market system operating underneath what the government has declared as right and good. So that uh, I thought was kind of a cool thing that can happen with these illegal or informal markets, especially in governments or countries where there's some bad stuff going on. Stuff that we don't see. Most Americans don't even come close to seeing. It'd be interesting to ask them how they handle disputes because what happens when I just take that guy's gasoline out of his trunk? Right. He with the biggest club wins. Yeah. And so I think that's kind of what Scarbrack talks about in in the book is that's what gave rise to organizations when the norms broke down. Well, also, I mean, if you just try to take that guy's gasoline if you're the consumer and you had to have somebody vouch for you to get entree to this person, True, yeah. um, then not only are you not going to be able to go to anybody else to buy gasoline in the future, the person that got you entree, they're going to be put in a bad place too. So, I mean, with these informal markets, it, I mean, reputation goes so far, right? And so um, I think there's, in contrast to thinking there's going to be, you know, some guy with a gun is going to beat you. There's every reason to think that once you're accepted into that market, things will be it really smooth. It's in your self-interest. Yeah. Too. But yeah, if, it, if the market's pretty small, but then, you know, when a whole country, what stops me from going to the next guy? That's just, you know, right. No, your point is good the way we started off, that that can only go so far. Mm-hmm. I have a friend of a friend, and, and then it we're all part of this network. But as soon as it gets too big, then that's where you're like. Yeah, back in the day when we wrote checks, there was always, you would go to a store, and they would have a list of all people's names who wrote bad checks. My mom's bar did that. Yeah. <laughs> put it up on our big billboard. The bad checklist, yes, yes. So definitely reputation matters, so. All right, well, I think uh, that's probably a good place to stop. And I appreciate uh, you listening, and hopefully... You know, let me just sneak in one thing, Levi, sorry. (laughs) Okay, we'll just cut that out. Here it is. is, No, we don't even have to cut it out, because (laughs) this is so simple. But since this is faith in economics, uh, thou shalt not steal. Love thy neighbor. Love thy neighbor, thou shalt not steal. Spontaneous order emerges from that. Uh, Natural law, blah, blah, blah. Okay, there, we covered the faith component. (laughs) So, Levi, uh, you want to close this out? Are you going to take it all the way down? Oh, no, go ahead. Okay. All right, so on behalf of the Gortney Institute, we appreciate you listening today. Please uh, hit the old subscribe button if you like what you hear. And uh, we also have a donate button at the Gortney Institute website. And we appreciate uh, any donations that you bring to help us continue to 
bring this type of information to young minds. Uh, we have some high school events coming up as well as for our college students, and that's what we want to do here at the Gordon Institute. So other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.